Did you miss last weekend? If you did, it was a bummer that you missed last weekend. It's Vision Weekend, uh, and it's a very, very important message that we would like all of the Journey Church family to hear and engage in. So if you missed it, please grab a CD on your way out today at the CD table. Don't worry about dropping a buck that's uh, on us. Or you can just hit the Journey page on iTunes on your computer and download the video or audio podcast, however you want to do that, and just listen in because it's a course-setting message for us over the course of the next 12 months. So uh, tune into that if you would, please. The year was 1988. Uh, The previous year, my mom and dad, brother and I, that was our whole family, we moved uh, from the little, little town in Northern California called Willows. Uh, and, and it is Northern California, okay? I just I, I want to be very clear. It's Northern California, and uh, California is almost two different states. You know, there's like the Southern California thing, and the Northern California, it, it, it's different than Southern California. Where I lived is like hot rice farming country, and we moved from Willows to Billings, Montana. The year before we moved, my parents had begun the process of adopting a little girl from another country. But because we moved, uh, the adoption agency that we had been conducting this process with in California, they didn't do adoptions in Montana, and so we had to start the whole process all over again. And that just, it was okay. It was like, okay, this seemed like a minor obstacle in the whole scope of things. And so we replunged into the paperwork, all the social worker visits, all the fingerprints and FBI background checks. You know, I'm in eighth grade and they're running an FBI background check on me and fingerprinting me to make sure that, you know, uh, I hadn't done anything illegal to that point. Uh, Some months later, we submitted uh, all of our paperwork, got all of that done, and then some months after that, we received this very official-looking packet in the mail. And it had a very short two- or three-line bio and a photograph of a little girl from Korea and her name was Kim Mi Ryung. I have no idea if I've pronounced that correctly, and you probably don't either because you don't speak Korean, and so we're probably safe. And she had been born a few months premature. She was living in a foster home at that time in Seoul, South Korea. And the adoption agency, when they send you these referral packets with this little picture and this little bio, they actually send this little sheet of paper along with it. It's like, check yes or no. Do you want this kid or not? And so my parents are like, oh, good grief. Of course we want this little girl. And so they check the yes box and send it back in. And from that point forward, my parents almost immediately named her Katie, and she took up residence in our hearts as we hoped and as we prayed for the day when we would be able to hold her, that she would actually get to come home and and become our very own, my sister and my parents' daughter and so on. And my mom did a really smart thing. She took that little tiny photograph of little Kim Mi Ryong, little Katie, sitting on the lap of her foster mom, and she put that picture right on the edge of our kitchen counter. And so her photograph was almost unavoidable. That all the coming and going in and out of the kitchen, there, there she was. And multiple times throughout the course of a day, I would stop and I'd sort of have these little conversations with Katie and I'd pray over Katie as if she could hear me through the picture or something, you know. And once you have this referral, once you've accepted this child, it really is just a waiting game from that point on. The adoption agency, they try to give you these sort of updates about, okay, here's what's happening. These papers are with the government, and here's what's going on. And back in those days, there was no email, and so it was all, you know, via phone or via a U.S. Postal Service. These days, it's much simpler. They send out uh, emails with photographs and so on, but back then, they, they didn't do that. It was a phone call or a letter that you would get to say, here's what's happening today, and so you just hunker down. You just buckle in, and you wait, and you pray for Katie's homecoming or any child's homecoming, and so... We just did it. Now, the adoption agency, they said, okay, look, 
from referral to bringing Katie home would be about four to six months. That's just fine. So we hunkered down and we buckled in and we readied ourselves for that kind of a wait. My parents had this business trip to Mexico that was planned right about the three-month mark of the waiting period, and we expected that just wouldn't be any problem at all. They said Katie would be arriving in the four- to six-month window, so my parents left on their business trip for a week uh, to Mexico. My brother, he flew to California to hang out with friends during that week. I packed my bags and headed across the street to our neighbor's house where I was going to stay while my parents were away. And I just want you to think about that with me. Who got the short end of that stick, right? Think about it. Parents go to Mexico. Brother goes to California. Me, I go across the street. Neighbors, Billings, Montana. <laughs> Brown town, right? I, there I was. Uh, I, I'm doing okay with the whole my parents show favoritism to my brother. I, I'm going to make it, I think. There I was at the neighbor's house a few days into that week. I was there by myself, as I recall, and the phone rang. And these were the kinds of neighbors where if you were at their house, you would answer the telephone, and so I did. And what to my shock and my disbelief, there was our adoption agency on the other end of the line proclaiming that Katie would be arriving in Seattle the following Saturday. It was Wednesday afternoon. She would be there on Saturday. I said, wait, that that ma'am is not going to work. My parents are out of the country, and I don't think you're going to let me go get my four-month-old sister by myself. And, and this very kind but firm lady on the other end of the line said, I'm sure you will figure something out. Click. And that, that, was the, that was the end of it. Now, I didn't even know how to call Mexico to tell my parents that Katie would be coming, but we managed to navigate that, and we just scrambled for the next few days and hours to make sure that we could get my, at least my folks there. And then, as it turns out, they wanted us there, my brother and I. My brother, he was eight years old, and he was having a big time with his buddies in California. And so he said, now, uh, you're going to videotape Katie arriving, right? We're like, well, yeah, we, we certainly will. You know, one of those huge, this was 1988, one of those big, like, TV camera things, you know, it takes like four people to lug it along. Yeah, we're going to record that. He said, I'll just watch the video. I'll stay in California, watch the video. We're like, all right. I don't think my sisters held it against him. And so there we were, Saturday morning in April, and I was standing there on the other side, uh, the side I should have been on, of the customs glass in the Seattle airport, and I saw my sister Katie live for the very first time. And here's how it works. A traveler's aid volunteer goes onto the airplane and gets your child. That's how they did it in those days. And uh, then brings the child out. And so there she was, the other side of the glass. And I just stood there watching Katie live for the very first time. Coming down this escalator in the arms of this traveler's aid volunteer. And I was incredibly moved. And I'm an eighth grade boy right? And eighth grade boys are not known for their outward expression of emotion, right? And there I am, and I'm just bawling like a baby. I got tears streaming down my face because this is so incredibly moving to me. And with those tears streaming down my eighth grade face, me and the Lord, we had a little conversation right then and there. And I said, all right, Lord, someday me and whoever my future wife is going to be, I didn't have that figured out when I was in eighth grade, we're going to adopt a child or we're going to adopt children who have no family and who have no home. It was like a calling the Lord just sort of deposited on me right there. We had this little transaction. And I think a very fair and a very good question to ask after hearing that story is where in the world did that emotion, where in the world did that desire within you come from? And here's my view, that it actually came from God's own Holy Spirit stirring all of that stuff up in me, all of that emotion, all of that calling, all the way back some 21 years ago 
Why? Because in my view, I don't think there's much that's closer to the heart of God than this adoption deal, than the bringing home of the neglected and the discarded children of the world. I do not think there is much closer to the heart of God, which is what we're going to talk about together today in a message that's called Adopted, very simply. If you read the Old Testament of the Bible very much, you know that there are multiple occasions throughout the Old Testament where we see children scooped up through this process of adoption. Moses, who's one of the greatest leaders of all time in all of human history, he was adopted, wasn't he? Look at Exodus 2.10. Later, the Bible says, when the boy was older, this is Moses being talked about here, his mother brought him back to Pharaoh's daughter who adopted him as her own son. The princess named him Moses, for she explained, I lifted him out of the water. One of the greatest leaders of all time, adopted. Esther, one of the greatest female leaders of all time, she was also adopted. Look at Esther 2.7. This man had a very beautiful and lovely young cousin, Hadassah, who was also called Esther. When her father and mother died, Mordecai adopted her into his family and raised her as his own daughter. A couple of occasions, at least, in the Old Testament where we see this adoption deal very, very close to the heart of God. And then you flip over to the New Testament of the Bible, and we see this adoption deal take on very significant theological meaning. This isn't just about kids being adopted anymore. It takes on significant theological meaning. Let me lay a little theological foundation. We believe as a church community that at the moment of salvation, the the instant of salvation, the moment that any of us first respond to God's gracious invitation to live in relationship with him, and the moment we acknowledge our belief that Jesus died for our sin, the moment we repent of our sin, the moment we orient our lives toward God, we believe that three things happen instantaneously and simultaneously. First, you are justified, number one. Second, you are regenerated, number two. And third, you are adopted. Justified, regenerated, and adopted. They're like $20 words, so let's break it down at least a couple of layers. Let's take the first one, justified, first. At the root of the word justified is the word just. You all know that, as in like justice, right? And this theological concept of being justified bears a sense that God's requirement for justice has been met. Now think about it. God is perfect, and God is holy, and God is entirely and fully just, right? And so there is this outstanding need for his justice to be met, for his justice to be satisfied. And the atonement then, that's Christ's death on the cross as the payment for our sin, was in part about God's justice and his mercy coexisting in such a way that the penalty for our sin might be paid. Now, I want you to imagine with me for a moment receiving a bill in the mail that you have absolutely no chance whatsoever of paying. Just pick the number, whatever it is for you. For some people, it's like 10 bucks. A $10 bill shows up and we're going like, how in the world am I going to, for some of us, it's like a million dollar bill. I have no idea how I'm going to pay that million dollar bill. I want you to imagine that your bill that's due to God is absolutely and utterly unpayable by you. You have not a single chance of meeting that obligation. Not a chance. And God looks on every single one of us 
And he says there's only one person who is capable of paying that debt, and it is the person of Jesus Christ. And so God sent him to pay that bill, to settle that debt, to satisfy that justice inside of God. And one way to think about this uh, deep and heavy concept of justification that sort of breaks it down another layer is to think about it like this. When I was justified, when any of us were justified, that means the moment that we cross the line of faith in Jesus Christ, in God's eyes, it's just as if I've never sinned. Justification. That's what it is to be justified. It is just as if you've never sinned. That's the way God sees us once we cross the line of faith in him. It's through that act of justification, see, that we are forgiven by God, that we are saved, set free from the penalty of our sin, that we are actually pardoned by God. Justification. That's what happens first. The moment that we cross the line of faith, we are justified. And then we're, a second $20 word, we're regenerated at that point. See, part of our coming to faith in Jesus Christ is this reality that we have this slate of our lives that needs to be wiped clean. We all have need to start over again. Every single one of us, I don't care who we are, we've got stuff in our past that we need to start over from, that we need to be set free from. We need to be released from that stuff. And it's dark and it's dirty and much of it is very evil and we need to be cleaned up and released and set free from that. The slate of our lives wiped clean, a fresh start. In my view, it's one of the greatest realities of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can have a new life. The slate of our lives, all that old, dark, evil stuff does not have to set the agenda, set the course for the rest of our lives. We can start over again. Now, that doesn't mean we can start life all over again as a baby. We don't get to go back that far. But we can experience spiritual rebirth. Jesus talks about it in John chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Check this out. There was a man named Nicodemus. Lots of you know this story. He was a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. After dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. Interesting that he waited until after dark to come and see Jesus. Rabbi, he said, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. And look at how Jesus replies. This is a very interesting response. I tell you the truth. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. What do you mean? exclaimed Nicodemus. This is a smart guy Jesus is talking to. How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? Picture that, right? What's that look like? Jesus replied, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So don't be surprised when I say, you must be born again. Jesus is referring to this concept of regeneration. How in the world is that possible? Well, the New Testament manages to shed some, though certainly not all, light on this concept of regeneration, on this concept of new birth. Look at Romans 6, 4, for example. For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. 
And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. So somehow, some way, in the spiritual realm, our regeneration is tied to the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's tied in. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 17. Either way, Paul writes, Christ's love controls us. Since we believe that Christ died for all, we also believe that we have all died to our old life. He died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. It's not about you, is it? Instead, they will live for Christ, who died and was raised for them. So we have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. We have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. What do you think that looks like? We have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view probably gets into judgment, doesn't it? That tendency we all have to judge and call out and think ill of other people. We have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view, our opinion. At one time, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view. How differently we know him now. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has what? Has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. Our new life, our ability to be regenerated is very specifically tied to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ was able to conquer death, hell, and the grave and was raised to new life, we're privileged to experience that exact same newness of life. That's exactly what happens at the moment of our salvation. We are regenerated in an instant. The old is passing away. Now, that doesn't mean it's all the way done with. That's why we still linger in sin, right? Because it's not all the way done away with. And we are in the process then of becoming a new creation. We have new perspective. Our spiritual eyes are open. Our capacity for spiritual living and righteousness is suddenly, for the first time, awakened. I want you to think about that for a moment. What does it look like for you to live life as a regenerated son or daughter of God. Because it's true of you. If you follow Jesus Christ, you have been regenerated. But how many days go by without us even thinking about that? Without that even being on our radar screen? Holy cow. Jesus Christ died for me. Jesus Christ made me new. That means that old stuff, that dark stuff that exists on the old slate of our lives that's been wiped clean doesn't have to define us anymore. We can be set free from all of that stuff. What does it look like for you to walk in that regenerated newness of life every single day? How does that change how you interact with your spouse? How does that change how you interact with your children? How does that change how you interact with your friends and neighbors and coworkers? What's different? Because you're new. Because the newness of life in Christ is washing over you more and more and more every day. And the old life is passing away more and more and more every day. See? Regenerated. First, we're justified. Second, we're regenerated. Third, the third and final event that happens simultaneously and instantaneously at the moment of our salvation is this adoption. And one of the best illustrations in all of the text of adoption doesn't come from the New Testament of the Bible, but actually comes from the time of King David. You all know of King David. 
In 2 Samuel chapter 9, King David decides that he wants to show kindness to someone from the household of King Saul. King Saul was David's predecessor on the throne of Israel, right? Why does David want to do that? Because David absolutely loves Saul's son, Jonathan. Jonathan was probably David's closest friend and soulmate, even some have called him. Now, that doesn't seem like that big of a deal to us sitting in this room today because we live in an era, we live in a place where peaceful transfers of governmental power happen either every four years or every eight years, right? We just had one. President Bush handed off power to President Obama. There it was. And it was smooth. There was no vacuum of leadership. And we just take it for granted. But in the days of David, the new king would literally wipe the old king's family off of the face of the earth, obliterate them, kill every single one of them to ensure that they had no ability whatsoever to come back and lay any claim to the throne. They were removing all threats. And so here's King David. He ascends to the throne. And instead of seeking out Saul's household, instead of seeking out Saul's relatives to make sure that they had all been done away with, David finds a guy named Mephibosheth. You name your son that. Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth was the crippled grandson of the former king, King Saul. And David sends out an emissary and sends out an invitation for Mephibosheth to come to the palace. And could you imagine being Mephibosheth? And you know how standard operating procedure in that day works. If you're part of the former king's family, your head is literally on the chopping block. And here comes the new king's emissary and invites you to come to the palace. What are you thinking? You're thinking, I'm dead meat. I don't want to go. But he does. He goes. And we pick up the story from the text when Mephibosheth arrives at the palace, 2 Samuel chapter 9, starting in verse 6. When he, that's Mephibosheth, came to David, he bowed low to the ground in deep respect. David said, greetings, Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth replied, I am your servant. And David sees exactly what's going on here. He knows everything that Mephibosheth is thinking. He's going like, dude, you don't have to quake in your boots. Just settle down. It's going to be okay. What does David say? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Chill out. I intend not to kill you. I intend to show you kindness because of my promise to your father, Jonathan. I will give you all the property that once belonged to your grandfather, Saul. You will eat here with me at the king's table. Mephibosheth bowed respectfully and exclaimed, Who is your servant that you should show such kindness to a dead dog like me? That's a term of, dog was a term of contempt. To call oneself a dog or a dead dog was this expression of great humility before a great superior. Who is your servant that you should show such kindness to a dead dog like me? And then the king summoned Saul's servant, a guy named Ziba, and says, I've given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and servants are to farm the land for him and produce food for your master's household. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, will eat here at my table. Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. He inherited quite a staff about that fast, didn't he? And Ziba replied, yes, my lord, the king. I am your servant. I will do all that you have commanded. And from that time on, Mephibosheth ate regularly at David's table. Watch this. Like one of the king's own sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah. And from that time on, all the members of Ziba's household were Mephibosheth's servants. And Mephibosheth, who was crippled in both feet, lived in Jerusalem and ate regularly at the king's table, just like one of David's own sons. 
and you press into that story and you think about it, do you see what God is trying to teach us? You talk about mercy and you talk about grace. According to standard operating procedure, Mephibosheth should have been coming to see the king only to have a death sentence pronounced upon him. But instead, David extends much mercy and much grace by allowing him to live and then by adopting him as one of his own sons. Think about that. Unbelievable. Remarkable. And that story of Mephibosheth and David, it ought to be very familiar to every one of us. Because see, Mephibosheth's plight That's our plight. His story is our story. Mephibosheth, certainly, he was the son of a prince, indeed. But that meant now that David had ascended to the throne, that he was part of a condemned family. He was condemned to die. Mephibosheth, he's lame in both of his feet, right? That means that he can't even walk. Mephibosheth, he lived out in a place that was called Lodabar. And you think Glendive is a bad place to live. Lodabar is something else. Lodabar literally means no pasture. I love having fun with the Glendive folks. I don't know what they think of me, but we needle them. Lodabar means no pasture. You talk about a hopeless existence. You live in a place that's called no pasture. It's hot, it's dry, it's bleak. And that's our story. That's us. Apart from a relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ, we are lost. We find ourselves in a very tragic situation. We've fallen. None of us can walk in a way that pleases God. We're separated from our true home with God. We're under condemnation. We're part of a condemned family, unable to help ourselves. That's us. And in the story of Mephibosheth and David, along comes David. And he acts the part of a savior, really, in this case. And he scoops Mephibosheth up and he calls him to come to his home. And he makes him part of his own family. And notice, just like a whole bunch of people around us every day today, Mephibosheth, he wants to work his way into forgiveness, doesn't he? He wants to work his way into forgiveness. He wanted to work his way into grace. That's why he does that whole thing where he flops himself down in front of King David and says, I am your servant. He's just like, just let me live, please, and I will serve you. I'll do whatever you ask me to do. Just let me live. Don't kill me, please. I'll just work my way into your grace. If you remember the story of the prodigal son, the prodigal son wanted to do a very similar deal. He takes his father's inheritance, he goes and he blows it on loose living, very loose living, and then he's got nothing. He's stuck in a pig pen and he wants to come home. And so as he's planning his, plotting his return home, he's thinking, yep, I'll just, I'll just tell that. I don't even need to be treated as one of your sons. I'll just work for you. I'll just be your servant. The same deal. Mephibosheth pulls the same deal. But David says, look, you don't, have to, you don't have to work for it. Grace is free, see. Salvation is free, see. There's no way, even if you wanted to work for it, that you could get it done. The chasm is far too great. None of us are going to work our way across the chasm of sin that separates us from God. Grace is free. You can't earn. You can't work for salvation. And David scoops up Mephibosheth and adopts him into his family and made him an heir to the king. 
And God does the exact same thing with all of us. He comes along to every single one of us and he says, I take you and I take you and I take you. As a matter of fact, I take all of you, every single one of you, and I make you my sons and I make you my daughters adopted into the family of God through my one and only son, Jesus Christ. The only one capable of paying that bill. And see, every one of us who are a part of the family of God We're only a part of the family of God because God chose to adopt us. None of us, I mean none of us, were born into his family. Quite the opposite. More like we were born into the very, very far from God family. And God says, I love you so much that I don't want you to stay there. I want you to come home. And I want you to be a part of my family. He takes us. And he makes us his very own And to this day, God is in the business of adopting children into his family, isn't he? He finds babies, and he finds middle-aged children, and he finds older children, children whose apparent value has been diminished, and children who have been discarded. And he doesn't make us work for salvation. He doesn't discard us. Instead, he brings us home. He adopts us into his family. And he calls us sons and daughters of the most high God. And because of the position granted to us through that adoption, we're able to call the God of the universe, creator of heaven and earth, we're able to call him our dad, Abba, Father. Because of our adoption into God's family, we're permitted to cast our every care upon him. We're permitted to eat at his table, just like Mephibosheth was permitted, invited to eat at the king's table, all because God adopts us into his family. Would you watch this, please? I was born in Korea and I was left at an orphanage. When I was two years old, I was adopted into a family here in the United States. Um, Within a year after I came, the couple who adopted me actually ended up separating and divorcing. So I ended up growing up in a single mother kind of situation for most of my life. My mom was married two other times after divorcing her first husband. My birth mother had been married and the man that she was married to died and um, that left me and three or four other siblings and I was the youngest and so she just couldn't take care of all of us and so I was given up for adoption. I always ended up in childhood struggling with things like where do I belong and where do I fit in, I don't look like the other kids, and and really feeling alone a lot. When I was in my early 30s, I gave my life to the Lord, and it wasn't until then that I really felt like I belonged. I really felt like at that time that being adopted as a child of God into his family, into his kingdom, 
gave me a place to belong and I felt truly, truly loved for the first time in my life. I really love the fact that I am personally chosen, not just by God, but by my parents. It's been a really huge battle for me, but um, Psalm 139 really got me through that, knowing that He chose me from before I was even born, and that He knit me together, individual parts of me inside of my mom. We're all essentially adopted, because when we do give our lives to God, He adopts us into His family and we become his children. I'm adopted. I'm adopted. I am adopted. We're both adopted. I'm 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 adopted. Turn to the person you're sitting next to and just tell them, I'm adopted. I'm adopted. It's true. It's true. And family, I think that God is inviting and God is calling and God is challenging all of us as individuals and as a community to be involved at some level in fleshing out the very same thing that God himself is about by adopting and by helping others adopt children from around the world and across the street by providing care and by helping others provide care for widows and orphans across the street and around the world. And I don't think for us, family, this is optional. We take what James says in 127 of his book very seriously. Look at what the Bible says. Pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. Guys, it's not an option for us. Pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. That's our assignment, church. There it is. Which is why we're inviting and we're calling, encouraging you to consider being a part of our brand new adoption ministry that's gonna hit the ground this week. And we see that adoption ministry doing several things. We see it engaging people through several ways. First of all, by raising awareness about adoption in our community. We wanna help people and encourage people toward the prayerful consideration of whether or not they are meant to adopt both families inside and outside of the Journey Church family. We know, we get it, that adoption is not for everyone. Not every person is meant to bring a child home from around the globe or even from across the street, for that matter. But we want to help people discern whether it's for them or not. The second prong is we want to help people through the adoption process. We want to walk right alongside families who desire to adopt from the beginning all the way to the end. There's this enormous load of documents that people have to assemble who want to adopt. We want to help you with that. We want to help you with the fundraising piece. It's expensive to adopt. We want to help you with that piece. We want to encourage you with prayer and partnership all along the way. And then when you bring your kid or kids home, we want to help you in that season of transition. That includes simple things like bringing meals, helping you with laundry, 
going shopping for you, encouraging you, walking with you, praying for you, and with you. And then we want to help raise the awareness of adoption in the community. We want to continually help to make this transition of internationally adopted children as smooth as possible, especially when it comes to cross-cultural issues. That includes things like working with our school system to provide necessary support educationally and emotionally for the children, helping work with the community to educate them on various cultures and traditions that can be very, very misunderstood, working with international college students to help educate and bring awareness to the cultures that are present right here, right now in our valley. Josh and Silas, they go to the big CJ middle school over there, and the teaching team called me a few weeks ago, several weeks ago, and they said, Brian, we are fielding hundreds of questions about Josh and Silas, about Ethiopia, about their food, about why in the world they've been adopted, uh, about how you say very inappropriate words in their language. And uh, we're hoping that you could help us once and for all answer those. So will you come and Josh and Silas, and if there's any way we could get a couple of interpreters so that the students can ask Josh and Silas everything they, they want to ask them, that's appropriate, of course, and, and just let them answer. I said, we'd be delighted to do that. So uh, this Tuesday, we'll go do that. And there'll be 100 eighth graders sitting there, and Josh and Silas will talk, and uh, they've already said that uh, there's not a question that they won't take except the inappropriate uh, ones, but they can ask about anything they want to ask about, about Ethiopia, about their family, about why in the world they've been adopted. And Lily and Cookie, they're two girls who are uh, from Ethiopia, nursing students here at MSU. Uh, They hang out around the Journey Church family. They're going to interpret that whole deal for us. They're going to translate because, well, Josh and Silas' English isn't that good yet. And it's fantastic, raising the awareness. And then we want to be about helping widows. The fifth prong of this whole deal is about helping widows. Because in so many countries, including our own, widows are very often left penniless and without means to support the children that they have in their family. And every one of those moms, every one of those single dads wants to keep their children, but very often their only option is to adopt them out so that their kid can have food and clothing and survive. But we can actually, in many cases, as a church community, provide the means of support for those widows, for those single parents, so that they can stay together as a family. So adoption doesn't even have to be an option for them because we want every family to stay together. That's our first choice. It's our first choice. But when it's not possible, then adoption becomes the option. But we can provide a first round of support to keep kids in their birth families right here at home and around the globe, keeping families together. And so I invite you and I challenge you and I encourage you to think about how God is nudging and inviting you to be a part of this ministry that is so incredibly close to the heart of God himself. Every last one of you is invited to join in this groundbreaking new ministry. The team's gonna gather this week for our initial launching meeting, as a matter of fact, Thursday the 3rd, one hour, seven to eight over at our offices, and we'll talk vision, we'll talk serving roles, we'll talk about how you can get involved. We'll let you pick your role on the team, literally. We don't think that we have all of the opportunities even figured out. We think it's resident across the Journey Church community. And so we're inviting you to come and dump all that out. What can we do? What should we do? How can we be involved? So I invite you to come this week, Thursday night. Why don't you bow your heads and go to prayer if you would and just speak to the Lord about what you're thinking about. Listen in to him about what he might be nudging your heart toward.
Maybe the Lord's nudging your heart in regards to what it looks like for you to live as a justified, as a regenerated, as an adopted child of God. Maybe you've been awfully passive or negligent or forgetful about those three realities. You've just simply thought of yourselves as a Christian. But what does it look like for you to walk in the reality that you've been justified just as if you've never sinned? What changes for you in that reality? What changes for you in the reality that says the old has gone, the new has come? What does it look like for you to live as a regenerated child of God? Where the slate that is your former life before Christ doesn't have to define who you are today. You're set free from all of that garbage. And what does it look like for you to live as a son or daughter of the Most High God? That's you. That's who you are. You're a son. You're a daughter. You're adopted, invited. Invited to feast at the king's table. You. What does it look like for you to live in that reality? What changes in that paradigm? And maybe there's some of you who are here today and you find yourselves in the same place that Mephibosheth found himself in, very far from God, destined for a very hopeless existence. And maybe today your soul is crying out, I want to be justified. I want to be regenerated. I want to be adopted into the family of God once and for all. If that's you, if that's the cry of your heart, I just invite you to pray along with me. Jesus, I don't even fully understand everything that this means. But I know I'm tired of this isolated and hopeless existence. I know I need something more. I know I need something different, God. I need you. Thank you so much for sending your one and only son, Jesus, to make a way for me to have a relationship with you. God, I get it. I know that I've sinned. I get it. I know that you are perfect. I know, God, that my sin has separated me from you. But God, with everything in me, I believe that Jesus died on the cross to justify me. And I ask you to, by his death, forgive me and pardon me and send your son, Jesus Christ, to live resident in me all of my days. God, I'm asking you from here forward to be my friend and to change me and to clean me up and to make me your own son, to make me your own daughter, please, God. And if that's you, if you prayed with me just then, that's the biggest decision of your whole life. There's nothing more important than that. And around here, it carries so much weight for us that we actually invite and we actually ask you to tell us when you made that decision. And this is a real private deal. Nobody's looking around this room but me. I'm just going to ask you, if you invited Jesus into your life just then, would you be so bold as to slip your hand up and make eye contact with me and just say, yes, I did that right then. I did that just now. Just do that right now. Just slip your hand up and make eye contact with me. You right there and you in the back, back there, and you way in the back over there and in the bleachers there. I see you. 
Make sure I catch your eye, would you please? You right there. God's making you new, justified, regenerated, adopted. God, the overwhelming truth for us is that it was incredibly expensive for you to bring us home to yourself. And we are immensely grateful that you were willing to pay such a price, the price of your son, Jesus Christ. And our commitment to you in response is that we're gonna trust you and we're gonna depend on you and we're gonna follow you and we're gonna lay our lives down in worship to you out of our sheer gratitude, God. We're yours. We're yours. Thanks for paying the price for us that we didn't have a chance of paying. And God, would you scoop up this little adoption ministry that we're launching, and would you hold it real close to your heart, God, and would you use it, please? We don't have it all figured out, and so we're trusting that you do and that you have the direction charted. God, may that be real useful to you. May we be real useful to you to that end, becoming your hands and feet in the lives of widows and orphans across the street and around the world, literally, God. We sure love you. And we live our lives in worship and awe of simply who you are, your majesty and your grandeur, your beauty, God. Thanks for making us your kids. Thanks for bringing us home to yourself. In Jesus' name we pray this. And the church said, amen.